Well, I hope y'all are as thankful for these elders as I am. (laughs) I sent out a text, and my voice has been struggling this week. It's been going in and out. And I asked if any of them would be willing to read, and it didn't take two seconds, and all three of them offered to read. So I want to thank all three of them and encourage y'all to continue to pray for them and thank them yourselves, because it is a blessing to have godly elders here that are always ready to serve. So I just want to thank you all from up here. 1 Samuel 14, and hopefully my voice survives through this sermon. Uh, It is a rather long text with a lot of difficult and fun names, which Mike did very well with. Um, And there's a lot of stuff in this text, so we're just going to go ahead and dive on in. But before we get to really our thesis and proposition, things are not always what they may seem. Our eyes, they like to deceive us. They can lead us into making decisions which can make things worse rather than better. And this is especially true when we choose to walk by sight rather than by faith. So when things get hopeless, you shouldn't just give up, nor should you trust in your own strength. We must walk by faith and act only out of that faith. And the Lord is the only one who can truly help in every situation. And so the thesis for this sermon is that because God is the Almighty, we must fight in His strength. So we'll look at two points. And the first of those points is faith brings victory. So the previous chapter left off with Israel in a rather hopeless position before the Philistines. Really hardly anything was in their favor at all. They were outnumbered. Only two of their men out of the entire Israelite army had a proper weapon. Most of the Israelites were scared for their lives and they were hiding anywhere they could, including literal holes in the ground. The Philistines, on the other hand, held the strategic high ground and had so many men that they could send out three different raiding parties to control the other strategic points in the area. But the worst part of Israel's situation was that Saul had disobeyed God and trusted in his own strength rather than the Lord's. And as a result, he had received no instructions from Samuel on how to proceed in this battle. Saul and his army, they stood in a horrible situation without the blessing of God and all because of his sin. Saul was stuck here and he had nowhere to go. So in chapter 13, though, we saw that it was Jonathan who showed decisive leadership and faith that forced Saul to act against the Philistines. And here, too, we see that the prince of Israel, it is he who acts decisively rather than the king. Jonathan came with, up with a covert operation that required absolute secrecy. But we can only assume from these events that Jonathan had lost faith in his father's abilities here. Because the plan depended not upon keeping the operation secret from the enemy, the Philistines, but from Jonathan's own king. So while the attack on the outpost at Geba in chapter 13 was possibly done without Saul's direction, this plan was definitely made without Saul's knowledge. Imagine coming up with a plan all on your own and attacking an enemy without so much as notifying your commanding officer. It seems from the outset that things between Jonathan and Saul were not good. We'll talk more about that later. In verses 6 through 10, we see that Jonathan's plan is set out. On the one hand, the battle, the actual plan, is remarkably simple. 
But on the other hand, we see in these verses a remarkably rich theological battle plan. First, there's a clear contrast between the two armies in this battle. Jonathan calls the Philistine army the uncircumcised. And that word is used by Israel as a negative term for other nations. It was an insult, setting them apart as an enemy. To be uncircumcised is to be outside of the covenant with the Lord. The Philistines, they were not in communion with God, and they did not want to be in communion with God. It was a lot more severe than simply being strangers. They were enemies of God, fully bent on rebelling and warring against him and his people. That is the Philistine side of the conflict. But Jonathan then describes himself, his armor bearer, and the rest of Israel as being God's covenant people. Because God, Israel is God's special possession, they were sanctified, they were set apart, and they were holy to him. And as such, there is a union between God and Israel. And this was no ordinary battle between two regular nations like we see in history books. This was a battle between light and darkness, good and evil, the Lord and Satan. And Jonathan, recognizing the spiritual significance of Israel's battles, rightly characterized the conflict. The section also shows Jonathan's confidence that God will save his people and bless his plan without at the same time presuming on God's grace. He says in verse 6, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, he did not assume that God would do whatever he wanted, but this was not a statement of doubt either. He knew God was capable and willing to work through faith. And from this confidence, we read the amazing statement, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. Looking through worldly eyes, there was no reason for hope or confidence at all. The situation was completely hopeless, humanly speaking. But Jonathan loved the Lord, and so he was able to see past the physical reality in front of him to the spiritual reality of God's almighty power. A living faith produces untouchable confidence and hope, even in the face of a terrifying enemy. Now, you might expect the armor bearer to stand up and object to this plan. But we see that his confidence in Jonathan was very high. And the reason for his confidence in Jonathan was that he clearly agreed that the Lord could bring about this victory. So in both of these men, we see an extraordinary faith. And the armor bearer needed that faith because Jonathan's plan was unorthodox, to say the least. I would not advise any military to imitate the steps of this plan because tactically speaking, it was a horrible plan. And I think Jonathan knew that well when he came up with this plan. I think he came up with it on purpose. But first is a horrible plan because it was the plan to abandon any secrecy or surprise by revealing themselves to the enemy. Just a tip in war, you never want to do that. All right. The second reason this was a horrible plan is that it completely ignores strategic positions. If the enemy left their stronghold, they would be much easier to kill. But if the enemy leaves, Jonathan and his armor bearer are not going to attack them. But if the Philistines tell Jonathan to climb up the extremely difficult terrain to their essentially fortress on top of a mountain where these Philistines would be the strongest, 
then they would attack the Philistines. So imagine trying to climb a cliff to attack an enemy at the top. They can see you coming. They can throw things down at you. And they have the high ground above you once you get there. Now, why come up with a plan that is this counterintuitive? Well, once again, Jonathan was looking through not worldly eyes, but through the eyes of faith. If this worked, it would be by God's hand without a doubt. His plan was so impossible according to human ability that only an act of God could actually bring it about. Unlike his father Saul, Jonathan didn't rely on numbers or human strength. If the plan worked, he would know that God had blessed him and brought about a victory. And once the plan unfolded, there was an escalation of events, to say the least. So picture a large stone rolling down a hill. It gains speed, it gains momentum, energy, and destructive power for anything that gets in its way. But here we see the reverse. It's Jonathan and his armor bearer acting like a stone, rolling uphill into the Philistine camp, gaining momentum as they go. And so it started when the enemy taunted Jonathan giving them confidence through that sign that they had set apart that God was with them in this plan. So up the cliff they climbed, hands and knees, and they struck down 20 men in one small area. Outnumbered 10 to 1, they crushed the Philistines and set the entire camp into a panic, which then spread like wildfire. Then, as if that wasn't enough, God caused a miraculous earthquake to further terrify and panic the Philistines. And the result was a full rout because two men of God acted in faith. Just as the plan was backwards compared to normal tactics, so was the result of that plan. So here we see the pattern that's set down in Hannah's prayer from chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, where the Lord likes to reverse the fortunes of mankind. The low he lifts up and the, the haughty, the proud he puts down. Well, that has been a major theme already, and here it continues as the Lord gives victory to Jonathan. Meanwhile, back at the Israelite camp, the sounds of the battle chaos carry from across the valley. The enemy is fleeing in every direction, meaning something has caused their flight. So King Saul, recognizing that someone had gone out and attacked, he looked for who was missing. And I think as readers, we should be a little shocked by that statement. Why does the king have to search for who is missing? Now, in verse 1, the author told us that Jonathan didn't tell Saul his plan. But how did the king not realize that his son, the second in command of the army, had left? This seems to imply a lack of awareness on Saul's part. But that was just his first error in this account, unfortunately. In verse 18, Saul reacted well initially to this by seeking the Lord's guidance through a priest. Before the army goes into the battle, the leader of God's army should consult God and see if he is to press the attack. So that's a good start. But partway through this process of asking the Lord if he should go into battle, he stops the priest. He says, withdraw your hand. He knew his duty to ask for guidance. But as the battle grew increasingly hectic in the distance, he became impatient while waiting. And it may sound trite, but Saul believed that if he waited on God, he would miss his opportunity to crush the Philistines. So once again, Saul chose to trust in human strength rather than the Lord. 
And unfortunately, this is a pattern that he's going to continue to follow throughout the rest of this chapter. But thanks to the faithful actions of Jonathan, this battle is escalating quickly into a victory already. So the Philistines, they continue to attack each other and turn on one another. The Jews who had been hiding across the territory, literally in holes in the ground, they come up and they join the battle. Even the Israelites who were with the Philistines turned on their former masters. And whether those Israelites were captive slaves, whether they were mercenaries or turncoats, is unclear. But once the battle turned in Israel's favor, they went and they rejoined their brothers for the fight. And through all these various events, the author makes it very clear that victory is the result of the Lord here. Verse 23 says that Yahweh saved Israel that day. There was only one truly powerful, decisive, and victorious conquering king on that field of battle, and it was Yahweh. He chose to powerfully save through the actions of men of faith. That brings us to the second point. Faithlessness brings defeat. So while Jonathan's plan had brought victory by acting in faith, Saul had a very different solution. We see in verse 24 an interesting solution to the danger that the Philistines posed to Israel. And this action is in the past tense, showing that it's something that had occurred earlier in the day. So while Jonathan and his armor bearer were already off on their plan to attack the Philistines, Saul had imposed an oath on the army. No one was allowed to eat anything until evening came with victory in hand. This was probably an attempt by Saul to curry God's favor through some form of self-denial. But there was something going on in Saul's external uh, attempt at piety that didn't match his internal state. In verse 24, along with this show that he put on, we also see that Saul, uh, in his words, said, Until I am avenged on my enemies. Till I am avenged on my enemies. Jonathan had sought to fight for Israel and for the Lord without any reference to himself. Meanwhile, his father was focused on his own glory and reputation. He was not concerned with God's name or his people. The fight was about him as a king. He had been humiliated by Samuel and the fleeing Israelite army before, so now he needed to redeem himself. So Saul made Israel vow not to eat anything for the whole day. Now, does anyone see a problem with that idea? It's horribly contrary to logic. Fighting drains your energy very quickly, especially when it's occurring over a battlefield that ran for anywhere from 15 to 20 miles. Now, forget about fighting for a moment. Imagine trying to run 15 to 20 miles on a completely empty stomach. Now, imagine being involved in hand-to-hand combat all along the way for 15 to 20 miles and no fuel. I can't imagine how hungry those soldiers must have been by the end of the day. But what must have been even more frustrating is what occurred during the chase. Along the way, you come to the forest. And in God's providence, there is honey everywhere that could renew your strength and help you to continue the fight with vigor. The Lord had provided a blessing to help Israel refuel and push on to a total victory. But because of your king's misguided oath, you cannot eat it. Imagine the anger. And the frustration 
among the soldiers. Then the prince of the kingdom eats some in front of you because he was ignorant of this vow. So naturally, the men tell him about this vow. Now, whether they were afraid for Jonathan or mad that he got to eat something in front of them, I'm not really sure. I'm going to guess both feelings were present in the army. Jonathan was very direct, though, in his assessment of his father's actions when he heard about him. Look in verse 30. He said, How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And apparently Israel didn't just miss out on the honey. The Philistine camp would have had plenty of food along with some that the fleeing army would have cast off as they were running. But it was all off limits. And it appears that Jonathan had been correct not to rely on Saul's leadership in these events. Saul's actions successfully debilitated an army and unfortunately it was his own. Jonathan's actions had brought victory while Saul's prevented a resounding victory, in effect undoing the work of his son. But a limited victory was not the only result of Saul's actions here. The men were so hungry that as soon as evening came and the oath was no longer in effect, they were as ravenous as wild animals. Imagine being so hungry that you will willingly eat raw and bloody meat. In our minds and in their minds, even that, that's the last resort. That's how desperate these men were. They were that hungry. And remember also that in the Old Testament, God had strictly forbidden Israel from eating the blood of animals. This was a major breach of the law of the Lord. And what may surprise you is that Saul actually took this breach very seriously. He set up a stone for everyone to drain the blood and rebuke the soldiers for sinning. This was an evil act by the people. But the irony is that Saul rebuked them while under the sin of seeking vengeance for himself and forcing a rash oath on his army. His sin led to the people's sin here. However, he neither acknowledged nor repented of this sin. So while he had a log in his own eye, he noticed the speck in the Israelites' eyes immediately. And it is in this state that we're told that he built his first altar while walking in unrepentant sin. And it seems to be really more of a monument to his own failures rather than to God. But nonetheless, with the army now refueled, Saul wanted to continue chasing the Philistine army. But once again, he was missing something. He had to be reminded by the priest that he needed to ask permission from the Lord first. So he asked the question through the priest, but then Saul receives no answer. Now, Saul rightly concluded that there was some sin present in the army. And like the wise leader that he was, he made yet another rash vow. He said, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. As we noted earlier, it seems that there was already friction between Saul and Jonathan. Now, Saul may have already suspected Jonathan here, or he may have even been angry at him for going into battle without consulting him. Remember now that this is twice that Jonathan has acted decisively and successfully without Saul's express permission or knowledge. Sure enough, the lot fell to Jonathan, and he told Saul what he did, and he said, here I am, I will die. So while Jonathan's response in the English may seem like a meek acceptance, it's really more of unbelief. 
In the Hebrew, it's closer to a question. It's more like, will I die for this? It's an objection to the harshness of the penalty Saul promised. According to God's law in the Old Testament, if you unintentionally broke a vow, it just required a trespass offering for atonement. That's all that was required. But since Jonathan never even took the vow, how did he break the vow? Well, there was really no reason at all that Jonathan should have been punished here. And yet Saul was determined that he deserved to die, leading us to assume that there was more going on than just this vow. Saul was jealous and or angry with Jonathan over something, and he blamed him for stopping the attack. But it was Saul and his sins that stopped the army in their tracks, not Jonathan. It was Saul and his indecisiveness that caused every problem of the day, while Jonathan had been the human agent of rescue and victory. So here, with Jonathan condemned by Saul, we see something amazing from Israel. The people, fully aware of the situation, stepped in to check the power of their king. Saul was acting like a tyrant, believing his words and his vows and actions were absolute. But the people recognized the evil of his words. And having seen God deliver all of them through this condemned prince, they stepped in. Saul is not behaving as God's king should be. The people remembered that he was not an absolute monarch. So they rebuked him firmly. Now Saul may have vowed in God's name to kill Jonathan, but the people vowed on God's special covenant name, Yahweh. The victory brought about through Jonathan's actions and leadership was confirmation that God was with him through these events. Therefore, Jonathan was ransomed by the people from Saul. And at that point, there was nothing left for Saul to do. He was upstaged by his son. The Lord hadn't answered him at all. And he couldn't even take out his anger on his son because the people had then opposed him. This was a firm reminder that the oath of a king is worthless compared to the word of God. Through victory, God had spoken clearly and effectively that Jonathan was not guilty of anything but faith. Saul and his rash decisions were the problem. And after all that, Saul gave up the battle and he did what he did best. He went home. And so the question is this. Who was really defeated in this battle? Now, the Philistines were routed, but that was not the only defeat. Commentator named Robert Bergen writes that Jonathan's faith-filled actions had inadvertently brought about the defeat of two enemies of Yahweh's purposes. One external, the Philistines, and one internal, a misguided Israelite king. God's king must walk humbly in obedience and seek to glorify the Lord rather than himself. And what this chapter made very clear for Israel is that they needed a king of faith more like Jonathan rather than Saul. They needed a leader who walked by faith rather than by sight and external appearances. And in this passage, we see several points of application. First, we see the danger of bad leaders in the church. Men who lead for their glory damage the church as a whole and all the individuals within it. And that is why if you look at the qualifications for leadership in the church, they're all centered around being faithful and being of good character above any abilities. Now, second, we see that sin and faithlessness can actually limit the victories of a ministry. 
a church being dragged down into division, into infighting, into heresy, or even idolatry will be limited in its ability to produce fruit. And this is true both for the leaders and the flock. If we are walking according to human strength and distracted from the primary mission of the church to make disciples, then our ability to reach the lost will be severely hindered. God wants to bless and equip his church richly. But when we choose to walk in sin and live for ourselves, he holds back some of those blessings. So the limited victory over the Philistines is a physical picture of the spiritual reality we can experience now when we are faithless. Third, this passage teaches us a lot about the balance between our efforts and God's sovereign help. Have you ever heard the phrase, let go and let God Well, the error behind that phrase is that it assumes we sit back lazily and wait on God to do the work. On the other end of the spectrum, of the error spectrum, we can assume that it is all up to us and to our strength and skills to get things done. And amazingly, Saul exemplified both of these errors in one chapter. Meanwhile, in Jonathan, we see the biblical view. While trusting in the Lord and his power, he went and he acted according to faith. He didn't sit back and wait, nor did he push on in his own strength or assume God would just do whatever he wanted to do. He acted while also waiting on the Lord. And while that may sound like a contradiction, it's actually the correct understanding of our actions and God's sovereignty. We must be 100% active in faith, trusting that God will sustain, guide, and conquer through us. Fourth point of application. You need to understand the importance of Jonathan's words in verse 6 when he said that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. The Philistines believed in the power of numbers. Saul, too, believed in human strength. But what neither could understand is that God does not save through numbers. Jonathan understood that salvation comes from the Lord and is not dependent upon our conceptions of power. And 1,100 years later, after Jonathan, God brought salvation for all his elect from throughout all time. And he didn't bring an army to do that. He didn't rely on thousands or millions of soldiers decked out in regal armor. Instead, he sent one man. The Son of God veiled his eternal glory by taking on flesh and dying. Victory came not through worldly power, but by the sacrifice of one man. If you think that Saul was the only one to misunderstand this, you are wrong. Our hearts are always trying to view things through those same worldly eyes. How often do we think if we have checked all the boxes off that we'll be all right? Instead of looking to the cross, we trust in our church attendance. Rather than walking by faith, we trust in a profession we made decades ago. You can be here every Sunday. You can say all the right words and have all the right answers that sound good. You can put up that facade of holiness. But if you are not trusting in Christ, then you are no different from Saul. Do not be content with an only external faith. While a living faith must result in good outward actions, the outward elements alone are just as dead and lifeless as the atheists down the road. There is only one path to glory And it is by walking with the one who brought victory through his own death and resurrection. 
That's why our call is to look to Christ with eyes of faith and live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have conquered in a way that the world cannot understand. You have conquered in your own body, in one person, you, the eternal God-man, coming to earth and dying in our place. And you have brought many sons to glory because of it. So Lord, we praise you and we thank you for that. We thank you that you make the, the wisdom of the world foolish. That your wisdom is perfect and complete. And by it, you have brought us life. So Lord, help us to cling to that life, to cling to faith, not to ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.